So, um, well, I guess I, I actually did want to point out that um, in the panel this afternoon, we have two Murray Medal winners. <laughs> so, um, so I, I hope that, um, that this will actually be a, an appropriate way for us to, um, to round off the discussions and pick up a lot of the points that we have, um, have touched on today. Because ultimately, if we go back to the beginning in terms of when I, when I started, we do need to be thinking about um, why we're doing what we do, which is obviously to produce um, actuaries who are going to be able to contribute um, in the workplace and in society um, a, 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 in, in a valuable way. And, um, and so the purpose of this discussion is really to try and, um, and, and identify the areas that, um, we, which we are doing well at and perhaps the areas where we could improve in terms of, um, in terms of those criteria. So, um, so to give that um, perspective, then I've got Emil as, um, as an employer of, of actuaries across different jurisdictions because, of course, um, in terms of the, the South African actuarial team here at Discovery, but then also across the, across the world in, I think, eight markets where we're recruiting actuaries. I think I worked it out um, globally. So, so also in a good position to give us some insight in terms of, um, of, of what the, the skill set that different actuaries trained in different jurisdictions are, are, are bringing. And then Joe, from having the experience in both um, academia and outside of, of, of academia in terms of the, her experience there, as well as the experience of the students that are, are coming from the, the program at, um, at UCT. And Mickey, of course, in terms of um, the work that he's done extensively, in terms of how um, those, the skill set and the, the relevance of that skill set is enhanced and developed in the, in the sort of post-qualification um, education framework. So I hope I haven't put you on the spot by saying why we wanted you here. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I'm just thinking while I'm talking that that's what I should have done. Okay, so... <laughs> So I'm going to start, well maybe then we'll just go in order that you're sitting, so Emil, I'm going to start with you. So the, the format is just for each of them to sort of give their perspective for sort of five to seven minutes and then we'll open the floor for discussion. So thank you Roseanne and firstly welcome everybody to Discovery in our new building. I hope you're enjoying it. It's great to see many people from my past in the Board of Examiners as well. So, um, so uh, as Rosanna said, we, we, we do obviously employ a whole lot of actuaries in discovery here in South Africa. Also across the board, there's a lot of actuaries that move from South Africa to, um, uh, to overseas markets. Um, I think the, the one thing that is true to say is that South African actuaries actually do have a very good reputation overseas um, for... I think pragmatism, uh, sort of real insight and interest in how to develop business, um, and they are very employable in international markets, where often you find actuaries in other territories tend to have a very narrow technical focus. So one of the things that, uh, that Razan asked me to, to address is where, you know, how we look at the different levels of qualification and how we look at FASA versus any of the other um, levels of qualification. And my, my quick and honest answer to that is that we really value fellowship more than anything else. Um, and in fact, I think the, the sort of testing that happens at that level where we develop judgment in, in actuaries and where we test their judgment is to me very important as an employer. And within Discovery, because we have multidisciplinary teams, 
you often get asked the question, but if a data scientist can also run models and an actuary run models, why do we need to employ actuaries? My response is always, well, you don't have to. If you, if you think that we don't add additional value, you should especially not employ actuaries or, for that matter, pay them more than somebody who doesn't have an actuarial background. But time and time again, we find that that hurdle of having to demonstrate your judgment in the exams do actually play out after exams as well, in, that this, in the sense that people who, who have been through the process and crossed the hurdle basically do show a much better sort of holistic view of the world and the business problems that we're trying to address. So I do, I do maintain the view, and I think it is the view very much espoused within this organization that actuaries add a lot of value, but they're valued not only for their technical skills. In fact, they're valued especially for the judgment that they show um, in practice. So for us, the, the profession basically produces, um, if we can talk in, in, about it in those sort of industrial terms, produces actually very, very sought-after skills and highly talented people that we find we can almost employ in any division, in any environment, and there would be people who would add value. Um, when, we th when we think about the, the syllabus, um, I do think that things are changing around us um, and that we, as a profession, maybe need to think quite carefully about how we expand and how we develop the qualification. So I think it is obviously very important for actuaries at university in particular to get a very good solid grounding in the actuarial principles that all of us have, um, have experienced and have been educated in. But certainly through the, the, uh, through the Adrian Gore Fellowship Award that we've been running for a few years and talking to different universities, it is very clear to me that there are differences between the syllabuses and we pick it up. So the one thing that I think we should think of is also how much non-actuarial material and subjects we include in the syllabus, undergraduate in particular. And I can, I can say categorically that people who have had more exposure to economics and to marketing, to business and those sort of courses, they tend to come in with an advantage against people who haven't and who focused only on statistics and actuarial subjects. I'm a firm believer in saying that people, sh one should cast the net quite wide at undergraduate level and also examine people and challenge them with non-actuarial subjects, even if it's only a few, just because it helps people to think a little bit wider. The second thing that I think is very important, and it became very clear to me when I went to the UK and I had to register as a chief actuary with the Institute of Actuaries, um, where there's a very procedural attitude to CPD and a very almost um, tick box attitude, again, between these walls, if I have to be honest, to demonstrating professional development and professional skills. And what I found is that most of the people around me and most of the people were talking about the videos that they were watching to get their hours for professional CPD. And when I watched those videos, I thought they were absolutely useless in giving any sort of professional skills to people. Because firstly, they were badly acted. <laughs> it looked as if they were acted by actuaries. <laughs> but secondly, the scenarios that they were, that they were um, basically putting forward, was, it was so easy to see what's right and wrong, that if you did not know that, and you're already practicing for a number of years, then really you should not be an actuary. So, and it made me think quite a lot about how little we actually give people background to, th to think about the really tricky moral and ethical dilemmas that you might confront when you're in business and when you think about what is the right thing to do. 
So, you know, quite often it's quite easy to say what's right and wrong. Everybody knows you shouldn't murder somebody. But it's actually when you create these really difficult moral dilemmas where people have to weigh up honesty versus loyalty, for instance. That's where it's much harder to judge and where I think a lot of people fall down when they don't, you know, they don't have at least the background and training to say that actually people have been thinking about this for hundreds of years. So I think it might be controversial, but I think a background course in ethics on what Kant said about the categorical imperative and a whole lot of other philosophical issues that are very non-traditional actuarial work is, could actually be very valuable. And the third area, obviously, that's, uh, that's big in our minds at the moment is data science. Now, I think, I mean, obviously what we have found here is that we get enormous value out of combining data scientists with actuaries in the same teams. Um, and what I think would be very valuable for graduates to have, or for people who even go through postgraduate exams, um, is a very solid grounding in what sort of data science techniques to apply to what sort of practical problems. Which is actually, I think, not such a big step for us to build into the fellowship type of uh, syllabus. To sketch a scenario to say, here's a problem that you want to solve what data science techniques would you apply to solve it? Um, and I think there's a lot of value in getting people familiar with those techniques and what they're capable of. So when would you use a gradient boosting machine? When would you overlay, overlay you know, particular sort of tools that we use currently to reduce the opacity of those, those modeling techniques and to try and understand exactly why it's producing a particular result? There's a lot of academic development in that area. And I think as actuaries, we should be at the cutting edge of that to prepare our graduates to basically deal with this in practice. So I've talked a lot now, but good. Thank you. It sets a precedent that I might get one as well, so just, you know, <laughs> preparing the audience. I can't talk and sit, apparently. Um, okay, so I, I approach this like an exam question. Uh, <laughs> and I read the question, and um, it said, are we producing relevant South African professionals? Um, so, and I like a framework for my question, so I, I tried to come up with a framework for relevance, and I thought about it, and it, and it, it actually came up as a kind of a, a concentric thing. So, I thought about international relevance, are we, and, and then that's one big component of, of whether our actuaries are internationally still relevant when we do whatever we do to the syllabus. Um, then the South African relevance, um, so it, which is, I think, a big topic for us. Are we, are we a relevant part of the South African landscape and are we doing something as actuaries for South Africa? Um, are we relevant as a profession? So, so this is a professional relevance. The profession has certain goals and are we producing actuaries and are we doing the things that we need to do to meet the goals of the profession? And I'm going to just take a stab at what those goals are, and they're probably wrong, but I'm going to go with it. And then the workplace relevance, finally. So if, when you're actually working there, do you have the skills to, to compete in the workplace, to get the job, to, to wow your employer, to, 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 to step into the job, um, and that sort of thing. Um, so my, my, my thoughts on the international relevance were about um, um, mutual recognition uh, agreements, not uh, agreements, but, but okay. MRAs, not MREs, sorry. Um, <laughs> the syllabus and, and the technical stuff that we need to follow, and particularly transferability. I think no matter what we say and whether we want our students to stay in South Africa or not, I think the idea that, 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 that the qualification is still transferable is still important to our students, and if we lose that, we will lose students, we will lose interest, and I think that has to be an overarching thing. I don't think we have a problem 
uh, with the syllabus and with the technical skills in general, but I think we do need to watch that international transferability just to, to maintain um, our standards. For South Africa, it's the ideas around sort of economic development, financial innovation. Are we the profession that can improve the South African economy, that they can lead and help the financial sector um, act, uh, you know, develop more access, develop more products that are relevant to South Africa? Uh, so is that, that's what I see as, as a South African context. And transformation comes into that. It sits in the profession and in South Africa. So transforming the profession um, has always been a, a, a big thing. And as I said earlier, uh, one of the big things about transforming the profession is growing the profession because you can't transform it without growing it significantly. And that's why on the professional side, the, the, the whole idea of wider fields and colonizing and expanding actuarial practice into fields where we not currently have entrenched footholds is important because there is only so many life actuaries, I think, that, that the industry can take. Um, so that's, that's that side. And then in the workplace, the work-relevant skills, so, so actually being able to, to step into it, as I said. Um, so that's, that's my, my framework. And then I was asked to look at it in terms of the, the, the TESA, MESA, uh, FESA. So that actually helped thinking as well. And, and did I do that thing that I was supposed to do? Um, so I, yeah, it's, I'm going to get my notes. <laughs> um, so the idea is that, that just to have a look at each of these areas, and then have a look at, oh, you've done it, you fixed it. Very good. Um, so I picked a few kind of key words, but so the transfer transferability uh, conversation, just briefly. Um, oops. <laughs> I didn't do that. Um, so the, the, the Tesla is not currently transferable, as far as I understand. <laughs> just, yeah, don't, don't let me touch anything else. So the, the, the Tesla is currently not, not transferable, as far as I understand. Uh, we, we, uh, is that the correct? Um, and the MESA is currently not transferable. We are working on it being transferable. Um, okay, but not, not into the UK, which is our biggest, I think, co comparison thing. I keep breaking it, so I'm not allowed to touch it anymore. Yeah, so, 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 so it's... it's <laughs> so can you press one button, please? So, so... That's how we'll do it. So there are question marks hanging over, over this, and now after her discussion today, possibly over the FESA as well, when you start changing subjects, if we start changing subjects in a significant way, um, is the FESA still transferable? So I think that's, that's, that's something to bear in mind. You're not qualified to press those buttons either. <laughs> Um, for South Africa, I wanted to, to, to pick on this, this idea of, of South African relevance. So are we, are we equipped um, to, to, help, to help South Africa become a better country, transform South Africa to, to make? And, and I don't know whether that those, those answers are, are right. Uh, whether, uh, but so, so the idea is that TESAs are, are kind of a technical um, qualification or, or part qualification or a step sto stepping stone qualification. Um, but I think the, the value we add, as Emil said, is when we develop the thinking. So at the FESA level, particularly, that, that's when we become, uh, I think, the kind of people that need to sit around tables and are able to kind of really add value to, to, to the discussions, to innovation, to, to thinking of things that p other people won't think of. Um, so these intermediate qualifications will, will help us a little with, with, with being in more places, but I think it's the FESAs that are going to be the, the big, big difference makers. One more button, please. Um, transformation. Um, I said the TESA is an opportunity for transformation because it does lock in a qualification that you get at some point during your, your, um, your, your career, your, um, 
your university um, studies. One of the things that I said earlier as well is that it really feels like the TESA aligns with a BCom, the, the MESA aligns with a four-year degree, um, at least at UCT, um, and then the FESA is the postgraduate qualification. So, so, so there is a, a little bit of, of, of you locking in a degree and you're locking in a, a part qualification and then you can take that in. And even if you don't become a FESA or an MESA, you still kind of have an affiliation to the profession, you might stay within the profession, you might participate in the profession, you might get those numbers up, you might open up these fields for us, so there's something there. MSA, I said wasted opportunity because we currently don't have the MSA scaffolded in, so after the discussion today it feels like if we do that, if the MSA becomes another stepping stone which you have to, to, to click through, I think it will change the, the numbers um, but also the experience in the profession quite a lot. I think, fewer, I think there's a risk that fewer people will become fessors because there is now a qualification that allows you to call yourself an actuary and you will have that qualification already. But on the other hand, I think it will increase our numbers in general, numbers of actuaries, actuaries of some level in the field. And this idea of, of a generalist um, actuary is, is, is still quite appealing and I think it's quite open to wider fields. Moving on to wider fields, um, so the TESA might be a stepping stone into wider fields because some of the, the, the work that our, our people might want to do might go into completely non-liability areas. It might not be worthwhile doing a subject like, like A301 if you're not going to work in that, but it might be worth bringing the actuarial skill into it. Um, the, the MSA, as the generalist actuary, if wider fields are a big area to conquer, then, then generalist actuaries make sense. You, don't, you shouldn't have to specialize in two subjects, neither of which you're going to to work in. So it does make, to me, a lot of sense to, to widen, um, to, 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 to get into wider fields to have the MESA qualification. Um, and then the worry about the FESA that, and, and I think we covered that in a conversation just now, how much do, do FESA specialize? Um, and if you're going to, into wider fields uh, and you want to be a FESA, is, are the specialist subjects any use to you? Will you have to do subjects that don't have much to do with something really weird and exciting that you're actually getting, getting into? So is the FESA necessary or is it useful uh, for, for, for a very wider fields um, actuary? And then um, finally the workplace. So um, the, the graduate level, I said missed opportunity, but I don't think it's as much of a missed opportunity because there is a, a normative component to the, to the TESA as well. So maybe, maybe there is something there. But what I, so I was thinking is that if a student graduates with a BCom, um, they, they're going into workplace. They're, they're a TESA level student and they're going into workplace. So we've given them technical skills, to, um, which is statistical and actuarial skills, but have we given them workplace skills? So I have a survey on the next slide. Um, that, that, that's exactly the level of detail that I was going to, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not finished, but, uh, and Steve is not here to tell me it's not statistically um, relevant. Um, <laughs> and now you broke the computer. Um, so this, this, uh, this is like a very, very, very core summary of some results that I got of a survey that I did uh, of uh, actual graduates who graduated in the last 10 years. And what I did was I asked them, um, I set out a, a set of skills, um, and I said, how much of this skill on a level of one to five did you gain at university? And then I said, how much of the skill are you using in the workplace? And, and this is just a very simple difference between the two. So just subtracting the one from the other. So it's not scientific, it's just showing you the, the difference, right? So the skill that they're using a lot at work that they learned very little of comparatively is Excel. Um, okay, it's, 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 the, it's the order in, in, in that order. And the other, the other three top skills are leadership and management skills. 
and the understanding of the South African business environment. Um, now, you could argue that leadership management skills might not be a good idea or necessarily teachable or necessary to teach at that level because you might develop them in the workplace. But I think the, it's interesting that the understanding of the South African business environment uh, followed by communications and programming uh, skills, those are the things that our students are missing or the feel that they're missing or they could have had more of, but they're using it a lot at work. Um, and the understanding of the South African business environment then harks back into the whole idea of are we, are we South African relevant? And if we are, why aren't we teaching that more? Why isn't that coming through more at the, at the undergrad or the TESA level? It's a very theoretical space, but why is it not more practical space? And then just the other stuff to look at is all of the things that are called, um, all the five things that are called uh, technical skills came up as, as the lowest. So, so our students think that at least they're, they're getting... The, the, the amount of the, of the teaching they got is sufficient. And the one that jumps out as the only negative gap is the statistical skills. So if you read that straight as it is, at least some of our students have been taught a lot of stats that they don't get to use. <laughs> Somehow that happened. I don't know how. Um, and I may, maybe... <laughs> um, well, I think that's... So actuarial skills they were fine with, but the statistical skills... And I think maybe it's something worth thinking about. There is a, a really, really heavy statistical component, and not everybody works that much with stats. I think some actuaries do, and some actuaries don't, but the degree is a statistics degree, and, and so, so it's the only thing that came up as something like... Oh my God, I, I'm, you know, I've never seen that since, but, but that was my undergrad degree. So, so that's my, my tiny little analysis of, of the skills gap. So yeah, so that's, that's all I've got. Thank you. Okay, well, it's quite hard to follow that dynamic uh, uh, display. So to, to make you forget about Joe, I'll go back to what uh, Miel said. Um, you... you you were talking about the, uh, the, the UK professionalism videos. I have a, a story about that I, I was um, checked up on, you know, the, as a um, FIA, um, you had to do, do your CPD, and one of the CPD things was you had to do two hours of professionalism CPD, and they, which they really interpreted as watching two hours of their videos. Um, so they, where's your two hours of videos? I said, no, well, I, I didn't do two hours of video. I, I did this 100 hours of creating a paper which I, on professionalism, which I presented at Washington, at the, at the, the international. I said, no, but did you watch the videos? <laughs> no. Well, uh, I don't think this is, I, I'll go and speak to my supervisor. I said, yeah, okay, just this once. Anyway, so, yeah. On those, as you can imagine, and as uh, <laughs> Roseanne said, I, th I thought about the question more from a sort of a theoretical, ped pedagogical point of view, but also like Joe um, looked at the, the, at the wording of the question. So we're talking about, or we're asked about relevant South African actuarial professionals. So if taking those words backwards, first of all, the professional, you know, what, what is a profession? And some of the work I've done, um, start, in fact, the, it really started from looking at that question back in, in the early 2000s. And at that stage, a lot of the definitions of professions were very static. You know, prof the profession is a, a, a bunch of very clever people whose society looks up to, is very happy to pay us uh, vast amounts of money, and we'll scatter a few bits of uh, wisdom at their feet. 
um, and uh, we came up with a more a dynamic uh, understanding of professions, which I think is 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 more in 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 line with what is the general understanding now, and it included that term um, professionalization, which I'll come to in a moment. Um, so we, the second part of the question was South African South African actuarial in, in the question. Well, that concept of a dyna dynamic profession and professionalization was that a profession isn't just a static bunch of people with, uh, uh, who own a, a bunch of um, ideas. It's any trade that gets together and over time they offer various aspects to the public. And those, those aspects, at some stage, they may offer more, and at some stage, they may offer less. And by the way, it, it is quite handy to divide those aspects into technical ones and normative ones and ones to do with the, the profession itself. So when we get to the next word in the question, which is relevant, I think um, it's that whole thing about professionalization. Where do we think at the moment in... Uh, 2018, it, it's relevant. Um, we might need to grow this, the services we offer, or we might need to reduce the services we offer. That's, that's, the, that's the theory of professionalization. Um, Roseanne said uh, right at the beginning, uh, the difference between qualifications and designations. Um, in, in this whole professionalization thing, I think it's our, our, our new outcomes-based CPD that takes us from um, a qualification to a, a designation. Which, so we then have this lifelong um, curriculum um, to find where, where is it going to be relevant. But it's very hard for us in this room to say where it's relevant. I mean, we've heard everybody giving uh, different ideas. Um, I think... Ashley and Emil, you know, said this, these normative skills is what re really makes a difference, whereas I think Stephen was saying it actually gets in the way of the curriculum and we haven't actually got time to, to, to cover it. Um, so I think I, I and even we can't answer uh, the question. It, that's really got to come from the profession. It's got to come from our stakeholders, which would be our clients, third party, government, um, but with this new CPD, it actually comes from us, ourselves as well, because we are, we are developing in whatever direction we, we want to go. Um, so all I think that I could offer for this, this, this uh, um, forum is that this whole education project should view itself as part of the... Um, designation, not just part of the qualification. So um, at, at that end of the curriculum, we've got work-based learning and normative um, skills. Th that almost needs to be very uh, seriously linked to CPD. So you, I think it would be nice if the edu education saw itself as part of this, this whole thing, even even try and do a takeover, as we were talking at tea time, and you know, bring CPD into the, take it away from professional matters and put it into education, or something like that. Um, 
Dale, right at the beginning, talked about the, the open loop. And I think our, our outcomes-based CPD is a, an open loop. But it's even better than an open loop because we have... Um, CPD is not just going, deciding which courses you need to go on and going on them, but it's thinking about it, what you need to develop, how you're going to develop, going and doing it, coming back and thinking about have you succeeded. And even that's only a minority of it because the um, literature tells us, and hopefully it's your experience as well, that the majority of your development comes from being at your desk, making mistakes, uh, learning, learning from your mistakes. So you may think I've strayed a little bit off the subject, but I think that that feeds directly back into, into uh, being relevant. Okay, that's my contribution. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Mickey. I'm really pleased, actually, that um, across the three um, panelists, that 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 point of of, of relevance um, has been elevated above just a, a set of skills that are useful, commercially useful in the workplace, to being relevant from the point of view of what we contribute in terms of how we think about problems from a, a broader perspective. So I think that's very important, and that's why we're a profession as opposed to, I suppose, just a, a, a trade association. So I guess I'm now going to, I mean, I'll, I, we've got plenty of time because I'm not going to take 15 minutes to do my wrap up. So, um, so let's open it to the, to the floor in terms of questions, comments. I'm, Christoph, I'm you going are to first start. off the mark. I have two reasons for starting. One is I have the mark. <laughs> and, and the second one, uh, maybe more legitimate, I have a time constraint. So I might slip out quietly, if that's okay. But I, I really, I'm really interested in Emil's perspectives, perhaps because you have the perspective of South Africa versus other environments. And so, um, you know, I often face criticism, and you might recall vaguely similar criticisms from before when, 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 when you chaired the, the Board of Examiners. Um, there are all kinds of criticisms, but... but Quite often we hear that South African fellowship exams might be too nuanced, too complex, too deep, uh, too difficult, too, too much judgment, etc. And, and I think almost the, the moral dilemmas that you described, uh, we, we like examining grey areas, perhaps not necessarily moral grey areas, but grey areas as you know very well. So the two questions emanating from that, I think, First, you know, do you see or do you believe there is a bit of a divergence developing between the South African tradition and the UK tradition as much as fellowship level exams are concerned? And second, if that is the case, would you say it's a good thing or a bad thing? And is it something that we should strive to maintain or should we strive to try and align with a, a different standard if there is one? Sure. So the, um it's quite hard to answer because I'm not that close to the UK exams at the moment, but I, I do think there's, there's important context. So in the UK, most people don't study actuarial at university, and I think that does actually make a big difference. Whether it's astrophysics or whatever they studied, they have a different undergraduate background, and then they switch to actuarial as part of vocational training. And that's still the majority of people who come through the system um, have that sort of background. Which I think gets back to my point earlier, it's as if people get early on exposure to a wider variety of ideas and then they focus on the actuarial qualification. 
So I think for us, it's important to maintain that in some way, also in our syllabus, even though on paper it might then seem as if we're imposing more requirements on people. But actually, if you qualify in the UK, typically you would take longer because you'd first do undergraduate something else and then you go on to actuarial exams. Um, as far as the, the so, so when I speak to the, to the graduates in our team, the, the British graduates, almost nobody has gone to Harriet Watt for whatever reason. I don't know if we have a biased sample, but the sense that I get is that, that it's not the most common route for people to, to follow a career, even though it is, it's becoming, I guess, a bit more relevant um, in that environment. But the, in the UK, as you know, snobbery plays, plays a big role. So whether you went to Oxford or Cambridge still determines your life, basically. Um, and which university you went to is very important to people. So, and there they don't offer actuarial degrees. And they, sh they shy away from vocational training. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I actually told Roseanne yesterday there was a fascinating article in the New York Times about St. John's College in the US. Where what they do is they don't focus on vocational training at all. They say that people should study Greek history, philosophy, Einstein, a wide variety of the best of human thinking and then they're off to specialize in their degrees. So, uh, personally, I think that it's a very valid point, or at least have some level of content in, in that regard. But when it gets back to, the, um, to basically the, the differences that we see in actuaries, I do think that in the UK, probably because of the, the way in which the profession is regulated, there's a very strong focus on procedure, filling in a whole lot of forms and ticking boxes like that you do the videos. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody would decide that if you, if you present a paper, you're not actually learning, you're teaching. So, hence, it doesn't qualify as professional development for yourself. And then that would flow through into a whole lot of procedures and administrative things that you have to do to satisfy the profession. And it comes out also in the way that people do their work. So, a South African actor is interested in the answer and whether it's the right answer. A British actor often is interested in the process to get to the answer and demonstrating to everybody that I followed the process. And that does produce two very different sort of dynamics. And certainly what I see is that um, I think in general, the South African actuaries develop prominence in the profession pretty quickly after arriving in the UK because of this sort of pragmatist approach which get noticed by the organization and hence they get into more senior positions quicker. It's something that I think we shouldn't lose. So I think that, you know, certainly you, you might have had that experience as well, but certainly when I was chief examiner, when we were confronted by employers saying that our students don't pass the actuarial exams, the easiest discussion with them is just to say what the pass mark is <laughs> and to show them the paper and say, do you think an actuary should be answering these sort of questions and do you think our pass mark then is too high? And very often then the answer is no. Hi. I think actuaries can still play a much bigger role in South Africa as a society than we are currently doing. So I am really hopeful that the post for, I think it was called the Public Interest and Research Actuary, gets filled by somebody who actually pays more attention to what is in the public interest than necessarily the company interest. I'm not saying that the two conflict all the time, but sometimes the two do conflict. I also feel that as a society, giving guidelines to whoever it is gets this job, and I did not throw my name in the hat, so this is a by the way. A decision has to be made as to whether or not we want that person to be politically acceptable or to tell the truth. 
and where the line is drawn. I don't, I don't know if I, if I may comment. I, I think, actually, when I look at it, South African actuaries play a far stronger role in society than what I observe internationally. Um, and I think it's part of our environment, but it's also part of the fact that we are having so many policy debates here quite often, where actuarial voices, even though they are often ignored for political reasons, um, they're still there. And I, I see far less... Um, involvement in society, societal debates very often in, in other environments. So I think we, despite, despite the politics around it, I think the profession actually does contribute in, in quite a big way. But that does get back to my first question, which is that, or the first issue I raised, which is if you don't understand really the, the sort of background from which people are making the arguments, which is most often not actuarial, if you don't have that broader view of society, where the economic theories come from, then what sort of tools do you have to really have the debates? So to me personally, it was very valuable to do LRB. And the course that I enjoyed the most there was the philosophy of law, because it dealt with all of these questions of justice and fairness. And if you think about what actuaries do, how you determine who should get benefits in a medical scheme or the, you know, what should be allocated to shareholders versus policyholders in a life insurance company. All of those are actually questions that, in theory, involve quite a lot of principles of justice. And we're not trained in it. And it was fascinating to get that background from law. And, I mean, lawyers have not done the best that they could with that knowledge, to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> as, a <laughs> as a professional, I think we do, if we can just expand our, our scope a little bit wider, I think as actuaries, we will, that will help us to become a lot more relevant in those debates, I think. Well, can I just do a bit of an advert for the convention? Because I'm chairing a paper that... Um, Lusani is busy writing, and his topic is the, a policy actuary, not not um, somebody working for the for a society, but that a, a career opportunity that he's he's envisaging. You know, that instead of being a, a a life or a pensions whatever actuary, you can be a policy actuary, and this is this is how you do it. And so it sounds quite an exciting new new, new uh, wider field for an actuary. Hi, Emil. It seems that we're all picking on you with the, the questions here, but it is, I think, relevant to our discussions today where there's been a bit of discussion against the principles of where well, Christoph's now left, but you know from your days as the examiner that we're looking at the F200 levels with someone who's got about three years of practical experience can handle the question while the institute and faculty increasingly talk about the, the embryo actuary. So in our definition, we build in quite a bit of time out the office on normative skills training, you know, be it a face-to-face -face professionalism course where you hopefully deal with things that are more complex and come through in a video, as well as various other skills. As an employer here in South Africa, where obviously you have majority of people coming through our system, but you still have some come through the IFRA system, do you see a difference in the and where your newly qualified actuaries are in terms of their readiness to, to take things on and to do things where they've been through either of the two systems, yeah, within the context of our world here? Um, sure. Again, it is, it's quite hard to, to, to be definitive about that or, or to, let me say, to highlight the differences being attributable to the exam and how it's examined. Um, because the context is so, is so different. Um, the, the people that, that we have in discovery 
almost without exception do the local qualification. Um, I think that, uh, that that still remains a, a very good standard to follow. Um, and I, I think what we can certainly see, or what I certainly see when I counsel a whole lot of students, there's, there's a lot of people in this environment, I guess just because of the environment, they get quite passionate about the technical work that they do in data science for argument's sake, and then say, well, actually data science is a far more exciting area to specialize in. I want to give up actuarial exams. Um, I always counsel them not to do that. Um, and the ones that follow the advice and who push on, even if, even if they got stuck a little bit with a fellowship, who qualify, I see a great difference in the maturity before and after. Um, and I think it is true because it, it really does force you to, in a, in a technical environment, to focus on the judgment of how you apply this in, in practice. Which is why I also think the fellowship qualification with a technical basis, it doesn't matter whether you did life or general or health or whatever, as long as you applied those technical principles with judgment and that's what's examined, I think it has enormous value. So I don't think I'll get a lot of disagreement from the other senior discovery actuaries that they still value the qualification and the fellowship as a very worthwhile goal for people to, to have um, and that they see a difference between pre- and post-qualification. Um, and also when people get that confidence, obviously, of having passed the exams. So it feels to me very important that we don't compromise on that, even if the UK tries, tries to narrow it down a little bit. Um, and I think, again, it plays out differently there because people, by the time that they write fellowship, they tend to be older already and have more business experience in any event. Thanks, Neil. That's why I wanted your comparison in our local environment. I appreciate your answer. Thank you. I have a question, uh, what something you just said reminded me of it, um, and something that Stephen said earlier. So I, I've noticed that, um, I mean, we obviously have dropouts at university level in first and second year because of various reasons. But I'm noticing an incre increasing sort of uh, tendency for students who are graduating after four years of actuarial science with a decent number of exemptions, sometimes top students, not wanting to continue and become an actuary. There's a lot of people who want to do a master's in data science, so a lot of them want to do a master's in quantitative finance. Um, some of them shift in fourth year and, and go into stats and do stats honors um, and there's a lot of I, I, I have an increasing number of stories and I think Stephen said something to the same effect of students not not, not actually after, after realizing now understanding what it was getting the ARM exemption or whatever then saying you know what no that's not, not, not for me I'm going to go and do something else and I'd, yeah, so I, don't, I wanted to check because we've got a lot of other university people here whether you're experiencing that or whether it's just something I'm doing um, <laughs> badly, <laughs> um, yeah, and and yeah, and that, so I, and that's, I suppose, and whether it's a, it's a threat or a risk, or anybody else has noticed anything. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to respond to that one. I haven't really noticed. But my question is again directed towards Emil, probably um, on the topic of research. So obviously, for a profession to claim it is a profession, it should have a skill set that it's developing and owning. And so, as a profession, research is presumably important. I'm not going to talk about the F200 equivalent, but as an employer, um, how important is it that the people you employ have the ability to think through and, and carry out the kind of work that would come from having done a research project? And maybe if I could give an example, if you were faced with two students, um, w would you rather see them having done research or would you rather see them having done more data science, for example? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. It's quite hard to answer. Um, we have 
over the years we've experimented with employing people from an academic background here as well. More, more typically related to data science. Um, but what we have found is that actually people really struggle to fit in because there is a, this sort of um, pragmatism de demanded by business which people very often can't adapt to. So they would rather want to do months of research, get the answer absolutely right, check all the boxes, make sure that their research is watertight, and then present you with a solution, whereas we need the answer next week. And it's that ability to, to be able to do that which we, we struggle with. It's not, not at all universally the case. So we find some academics very, very um, successfully making that transition. So because in business you often demand a sort of compromise when it comes to research, um, it might sound as if we're saying that it's not important, but I think, again, the thinking, the critical thinking about sources, about what you base your opinion on, is, is vital for people to, to develop. Um, and I think if, if, if one can instill that sort of um, thinking in students, that is incredibly valuable. However, as an employer, and with, you know, we've discussed this as well, it's, it's again, it's so difficult in a business environment to say that as a profession we should be doing research on discoveries data just because of all the competitive issues involved in that and all of the IP that we've developed over many years. So we try and install that internally and we have these very sort of big conferences that we hold getting people to compete against each other, present their research to us, and we give them big prizes when they, uh, when they do well in those conferences. To the extent now that um, you know, we get our partners flying from all over the world just to come and experience it here, and we have about 400 people coming to an actuarial conference in South Africa, so they can see how we, you know, how we basically encourage people to research. Um, so th I think the discipline is very important. As employers, we, we would very much want to encourage it. It's just so difficult to do if you don't have the data or if you don't have the, the sort of business context to make it relevant to, uh, to business um, and to deal with IP and competition type of issues. I don't, know, I don't know what the solution is, but it would be fantastic if the profession could develop more of the, the, you know, the research that we see out there. Maybe policy is one thing because there typically it does not involve those sort of IP questions. And as a profession, if we can have people who, again, have a bit more of a multidisciplinary view and presenting policy um, type of research, that could be a way to, to develop it in future as well. I don't know. I've said enough, I think. <laughs> Anybody else? I'm fine. <laughs> there we go, somebody. <laughs> Just briefly, and Monica will um, know what I'm talking about. When we do get to the research, um, you know, we actually are very good at the quantitative side. Um, if, if, if we do start um, pushing people, encouraging people to do research, there's a whole lot of qualitative stuff, the, the words rather than the numbers, the um, going, going through literature reviews and things like that, that we that actually, is because, because we think we know everything, we think we know those, those qualitative skills and uh, we actually need, need to learn them as well. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I think just uh, uh, maybe an applause for our um, panellists. Thank you, thank you.